Tonight's show is once again brought to you by the New Mexican Chili Cartel, Pepto-Bismol, Vendetti Optics, and you, our listeners. The New Mexican Chili Cartel struck again, resulting in acute gastrointestinal distress. is up all of you wayward souls and welcome back to the wayward stories podcast wayward stories is the podcast where we tell the tales of our adventures and our wanderings and our wonderings and i am glad to have you guys back here with me in the studio tonight so i can tell you the rest of my wanderings and wanderings throughout new mexico and also Arizona for a hot minute. We're going to talk about that tonight. How are you guys doing this week? We are in the middle of snowpocalypse right now as I record this here in Arkansas. It is um, actually real snow for a change. Usually we get ice here. You know, we get all these these uh, really disparaging comments from northerners. Every time we have something in the south and it gets icy, you know, we have like a 135 car pile up on the interstate outside of Atlanta or something. And then they all, you know, talk very, very patronizingly to us about how stupid we are. And like, I just want to say quickly for all of you northerners, any of you who are out there listening, shut your pie holes. Like until you come down here, like you guys you guys understand hockey, don't you? Ever seen an ice skating rink, a hockey rink? You come down here and try to drive on an ice skating rink. You guys, like, I lived in your cities for months and months and months at a time. Cincinnati, Columbus, St. Louis for nearly two years. Well, on and off for two years, but the full equivalent of probably 13 full months of my life, I drove in your snowstorms. You guys have got it made in the shade when it snows. I can drive in that all day long, all day long. Come down here and drive on our ice. Like it's not, we don't have Zamboni machines in the garage. Like some of you suckers up there do. It's a whole different beast down here. However, I will say this time, we did get real snow, about four to five inches of it, which is rare here in Arkansas in the last 30 or 40 years. And it's quite beautiful outside. We are kind of sort of snowed in, which I found out yesterday. Had to take my daughter home in the midst of this blowing blizzard and snowstorm to her mama's house. And I discovered that I am all the more, every single day, more and more a fan of Little Clementine. I am more than happy that I joined the Subi cult last year. And, um... Yeah, let me tell you something. I am a firm believer. Subi cult. All the way. Anyway, it's nice and cold outside. We are looking at wind chills right now, like minus four or so. I kind of feel like I'm in Kokomo, Indiana again. I remember a day there where it was minus 16. It was like 30 mile an hour winds. It was brutal. That's kind of what it's like here today. But I am inside. And I am nice and toasty warm. Got my house all cozied up. I've got a annoyed cat who... As much as she cries about me when I'm gone, I think she's getting real annoyed with me being home for like four straight days, which I must admit, I am also getting a little bit of cabin fever, feeling really sluggish and like bleh. Of course, part of that may be the fact that I spent five hours today doing homework. I mean, it was the day I was supposed to be at work. They called us off. Thank God. And I was able to get some much needed homework done. But thank God, there's nothing more miserable and sitting there and waiting waist deep through ethno historiographies 
like for five hours and trying to come up with like a paper out of that, it will make your head hurt. And my head does indeed hurt right now. But anyway, I decided to take a break from that and do something enjoyable that I also need to do, which was record this episode of the show. You guys, please like, share, and subscribe as I always ask you to do. And also rate and review. If you're not dropping ratings and reviews, but you listen to the show regularly and you enjoy what we're doing, please take just two minutes of your life to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts, and it helps us a great deal. Um, Anything else before we get going here? Oh, do you guys remember, some of you have been around a while, remember me talking about some of my homies I met up in St. Louis, my night hikers of Roton, two gentlemen who were on my route when I was still driving with Big Purple up there, who started listening to the show and are themselves avid outdoorsmen. And around the reason I started calling them the night hikers of Roton is because of the place they worked and the fact that they went night hiking usually around Halloween. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And I also thought that was the coolest name ever. I feel like these guys are going to like come straight out of the pages of uh, Tolkien and, and hike right through the heart of Middle Earth, right into your living rooms. The night hikers of Roton. I love it. Anyway, one of them, Josh, got in touch with me the other day and I haven't heard from him from him in a hot minute. And I was super happy to do so. And he mentioned something about possibly... Letting me know, getting in touch with some of his trips that he's taken, possibly some itineraries, or even about his experience of finding himself out there. No pressure, Josh, but if you do so, I will be very happily looking forward to it. It would be awesome to be able to share your story on the show. And speaking of people being in touch, Mary got in touch again, one of our newest listeners and somebody who has been staying in touch, which I love. And I encourage mywaywardstory at gmail.com. And she is right now, as we speak, if I have figured this correctly, in Australia or possibly New Zealand on some kind of trip of a lifetime. And I have to say, Mary, I hope you're staying safe out there. I'm extremely jealous because that you want to talk about chief amongst my bucket list. Oh, my God. Australia would be incredible. I did a paper on Adelaide and yeah, I want to go there. I mean, it couldn't get any better, right? It's the freaking continent where everything wants to kill you. That's where I want to be. I mean, I mean, actually, it just looks beautiful and the culture looks awesome. So anyway, I hope you were enjoying your adventure out there, um, which by the time this drops, you will probably be back. But either way, I hope you either did enjoy it or are enjoying it. And again, I appreciate you staying in touch. Anyway, guys, I'm snugged up here in the studio, Studio 119. It's cold and snowy outside, but it's warm in here and we've got a lot to talk about tonight. So how about we get into tonight's show? As I was drawing up the outline a little bit earlier, I like to do my outlines right before I actually make the episodes because it helps refresh my memory about what it is I want to talk about. And it kind of sort of helps me to walk through the narrative a little bit and get my brain engaged on the right track. There's a lot of compartmentalization that has to go on in my world right now. I have too many things that are completely unrelated going on at one time. Um, But as I was going through and making my outline here, one of the things I realized is I was like, you know what? I don't even really have to write much of an outline. I'm just going to go with what I've written down in my travel journal because we made sure to stop every day and take notes of everything we did that day because this trip was 
packed full of stuff. And I decided to take notes. And so these are actually really good notes. And they're all pretty much in chronological order. So we're just going to go through my travel journal. And we're going to talk about days four and five. The finale of our road trip out to New Mexico. Um, I'm really excited to talk about tonight's stuff, guys. We got into some fun adventurous stuff especially on day five stuff that's definitely right up my alley a lot going on in here that you guys are going to enjoy and something i'm going to try to talk a little bit more about in these episodes is really some of the stories of the people or the cultures that are in the areas because i find that usually this is where i'm going right i'm going somewhere that has something of interest to me and the reason it's usually interesting to me is because of the stories that the place itself has to tell. And the place itself has those stories to tell, usually because of some human occupation at some point in history. So the land itself and the artifacts is always going to have a story to tell, the things that I'm interested in going to see. But those belie another group of people, a culture. And also you're going into a modern culture that is informed more often than not quite heavily by the culture that came before. Um, so I, I'm going to stri- try to start highlighting those stories a little bit more in these episodes because it occurs to me, you know, this is really what I'm about. What did this all start with? Me wanting to, well, tell my story and my road to recovery after traumatic events, you know, and try to offer something out there for you guys to say, hey, look, trauma doesn't just have to shut you up in the house forever, feeling sorry for yourself, go out there and live, right? It's about finding ourselves wayward stories, right? This is the stories of being wayward. And I get that the modern implication of wayward, you know, the way the zeitgeist interprets it, and the way it's kind of commonly understood is someone who's strayed from the past path in like a negative way, right? Um, like they've gone off the straight and narrow, but like the actual definition is simply to be wayward, to be, you know, to lose the way, to be off the path. And well, I very much align with that. Like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing in life. I know what I'm trying to do, but I don't really know. Wayward souls, right? A lot of us are wayward souls in this world, trying to find meaning and value in ourselves and in the world around us. And what the hell we're doing here is the world gets more convoluted every day and we get deeper into late stage capitalism. Life looks a whole lot less like meaningful around us. And so a lot of us are searching for meaning, right? And this is where I found mine. And it occurs to me that a lot of the stories of these places that I end up going because my interest is is a lot of times anthropo- anthropological. A lot of times it's historical. I mean, often, more often than not, those stories themselves are kind of wayward. They themselves are wayward stories. So I'm going to start trying to highlight a little more. The reasons why you want to go explore some of the places you're exploring so that if you follow in my footsteps and follow some of my itineraries and go to the same places, you don't just go in and say, oh, look, it is a beautiful landscape. He was right. But you go in with a deeper understanding of the area, a deeper understanding of why the place is important. And I just really feel like those kind of adventures are a little bit more fulfilling. They're more expanding. And so I'm going to start trying to do that. But anyway, we're going to do some of that tonight. And we started out our day four after our first three days that if you haven't listened to the last episode, go back and listen to it and then come back and start right here. We're starting at day four. The first three days were chock full. Day four and five were chock full. So much so that there's a whole list I'm going to read at the end of this episode of stuff we didn't get to do that I wanted to do, which is going to necessitate a return trip at some point. 
But what we set out to do on day four was just go to Arizona. Now, I have been to the Petronite National Forest once before, some five years ago, but Jessica has not. And she wanted to go and she wanted to see Arizona. And I was like, it's been so long. And I loved Arizona. I remember it so fondly. I was like, we're just going to make one of these days that we're out here. The whole day is going to be dedicated to Arizona. We're just going to head into the state. We will try to drive, say, Route 66 as much as we can because we're kind of trying to make a thing of that. And we'll explore. We'll see what we run into and we'll take it all the way to the petrified forest and then we'll explore the petrified forest. And so that's exactly what we did. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview of Route 66 from Albuquerque all the way to essentially, well, just a little bit further beyond petrified forest by the time we're all said and done here. But starting out on day one, we're heading out, and this is going to outline a pretty good idea of what's going on on Route 66 from, say, Albuquerque to Holbrook, Arizona. Um, there's stretches of this that are very drivable, stretches of 66 going through, what is this, eastern Arizona, that are very, very drivable, but there's also a lot of dead ends. There's also a lot of places where it turns into, like, dirt roads that disappear off into a pasture that may, for all I can tell, be a farm road that are going to take you nowhere. Um, so you have to kind of try to travel Route 66 at your own discretion. And this is something you'll come across time. And again, when you're like researching and you go on to say travel websites or you order travel books, like I got one from the state of Oklahoma that we've mentioned and talked about recently. And it says in there, research your route carefully because it it turns from one road to another. Sometimes it just dead ends. Sometimes it drives off into a pasture and just becomes an old county road that goes off into the middle of nowhere and the true alignment is lost. Route 66 is not treacherous, but it is, I would say, time consuming to try to explore. So what we set out to do, because we had the end goal of getting plenty of time in Petrified National Forest was basically ascertained good drivable stretches in as much as could be done via Google Maps and a little bit of online research. And, you know, basically hit the main big towns you pass through and see what there is to see and explore a little bit. But keep on trucking. There was a bigger end goal, and that was Petrified Forest. What we found was essentially this. From the town of Laguna to essentially Whiting Brothers, which is, it was one of the classic travel stops. I believe there was a hotel at some point. I know there were groceries. There's a whole lot right in this area that it was supposed to be, but not much is left as most of Route 66 is. But there is a giant Whiting Brothers sign that is super cool to get pictures of. It's like very, very, um, it's very, very aesthetically pleasing. It's, it's vintage 66 kind of abandoned stuff, an old abandoned building is there that's associated with it in a giant Whiting Brothers sign can't miss it. So Laguna to Whiting Brothers is a great stretch. In there, you're going to find a place called San Fidel, and it is awesome for pictures. There are several little abandoned buildings. Um, this entire stretch that I'm kind of talking about right now, I got a whole lot of good pictures of, and you can go see those over at um, instagram.com forward slash waywardson119. Go check out my Instagram. You can see some of those pictures that I got in this stretch. 
Some of them are really, really great pictures. There's a lot of good um, abandoned buildings and buildings. Some of them have even been repurposed and are in use, but you can still stop and grab a quick picture of them. And they very much fit the bill of Route 66, as it were. So San Fidel was a great place to get pictures um, from Grant's all the way to Boland's old crater trading post, which is an abandoned trading post. It was one of those stops along 66 that there's basically nothing left of but a big building. It's kind of an icon on Route 66 that you can get pictures of, but that entire stretch from Grant's to Boland's is a super great stretch, including from Boland's on to the Continental Divide. Um, And that's about where you're going to hit the end for this little section of Route 66 coming out of Albuquerque. Um, At the Continental Divide, you can't miss it. There's a sign um, that's like a state-sponsored kind of sign you can stop and take a picture of. And then there's also Ortega's Indian Market, which is right there on the Continental Divide. And they've got their own little sign that's great to take pictures of. And inside Ortega's, you will find a lot of, like we talked about in the last episode, some locally created artisanal stuff made by the local Navajo, the local... The local um, tribes that are concurrent to the area today and when you stop at those places and you spend money there you can get some authentic goods made from authentic hands um not just tchotchke knockoffs from china some conglomerate commercial you know truck stop down on the interstate stop at these little stores where you can get something that is authentic to the people and it actually helps the people like i said in the last episode they need all the help they can get and this is one great way to support them and bring something authentic home ortega's was a nice little place i enjoyed stopping there but it's right at the continental divide you can stop and get your pictures of the continental divide you standing there it's like I'm on the East Bank. I'm on the West Bank. You know, you can be on two sides of the continent, geologically speaking, as it were, at once. Um, But there, you're going to want to jump off 66 back on Interstate 40 because just beyond it, it does look like it carries on as sort of a frontage road situation, which is a lot of what you get running 66 alongside 40 through Arizona, at least this portion, and New Mexico. It's a lot like a frontage road situation for for large portions of it. But it like dead ends a mile or two down the interstate and you see where it dead ends. I remember remarking, I looked over and saw it and said, oh, I'm glad we didn't continue on. That thing we read was right. There's the dead end and we would have just drove two miles for no reason to turn around and drive all the way back to the on-ramp that, you know, we would have bypassed to hit that. So once you hit, heading west anyway, once you hit the Continental Divide, there's no more 66 for a little while. Um, From the Continental Divide, though, moving forward down 40, once you get to Gallup, you can hit a really good stretch of 66 in town Gallup, and that carries on all the way to Defiance. Um, And that's actually a really, really good stretch of 66 to get to explore if you want to get out there and put your tires on Route 66 alignment pavement. Um, And also in Gallup, you will see the El Rancho Hotel. National Historic Site. What is the El Rancho Hotel, you might ask? I didn't know until I saw it. It just looked important. So we pulled in and checked it out, and it is on the National... It is a National Historic Site, which is something of a designation that's not easy to get. And what it is, is this this hotel was built by the brother of a very famous Hollywood director back in the silent film days. I believe it was still silent film. 
um, if not right at the transition. And a whole lot of really, really famous movie stars have stayed in that hotel over the years. And even their names are on plaques in the doors that they of the rooms they supposedly stayed in. And it was kind of built by this guy for the sole purpose of it was so close to so many locations they used on sets of those old spaghetti westerns and old westerns that it kind of became a base camp for all these early Hollywood stars to come and the whole crews to stay there so that they could go out and shoot their westerns and their spaghetti westerns. So that was really kind of cool to check out. You can walk right in the front door. You know, I had no reservations. I wasn't staying there. We walked right in the front door. We walked around. I just get Snoopy, man. She was like walking up and down the halls and taking pictures of the doors and stuff. And I was like, that feels a little intrusive to me, but like no one's saying anything. But I stayed up around in the lobby and I took pictures of some of the plaques in the lobby that explained the history, how it's on the National Historic Site Registry. It was very, very interesting. And it's very, very picturesque. It's very, very Route 66. So it's a great place to get pictures. But you can take this stretch of Route 66 out of Gallup all the way to Defiance, and it's a pretty good stretch of road. That's how I have it in the notes. To be honest, you may can go further than that. I don't really remember. It's been a week and a half, two weeks since I recorded the last episode, three weeks since we've been on the trip. A lot has transpired since then. Going straight from the notes, this is what I got. This is what we're working with tonight. Um, But once you get to Defiance, we're going to say jump back onto Interstate 40. And from there, you're pretty much kicking it onto Petrified Forest. I will say this, just short of Petrified Forest, be looking for a place called Cheese Indian Store. And I'm not talking like cheddar cheese. I'm talking like a name. It's C-H-E-E apostrophe S, Cheese Indian Store. And I'm going to read you something here. It's actually in Allentown, Arizona. And I'm going to read you this real quickly and tell you why you should take a time, take the time to exit and check out Cheese Indian Store. This Indian-owned business was begun in 1948. The Chi family started a small Navajo rug stand on Old 66 Highway about a mile and a half east of this present site. When the freeway came through, we moved down to the west of Allentown Road Interchange and put up a small building in 1970. Now the fourth generation of the family runs the Chi Indian Store and Rock Shop. We promote our own culture featuring handmade Navajo rugs, jewelry and pottery made by local and regional artisans. We also have a great selection of Southwestern and American Indian books. If anything is made in this area, we have it in this store. And that is Cheese Indian Store in Allentown, Arizona. And I just wanted to bring them up that you should check them out because we obviously did. And I just want to say, like, they were really cool people. And that was a really cool little store. And again, authentic authentic artisanal crafts. If you want to bring something home, a little piece of Navajo pottery, a little, you know, like a rug made by the Navajo, by Navajo hands, get it from them. Don't get some cheap imported knockoff from somewhere else. Go to these little locally owned small businesses owned by the people of those reservations and support them with your money. So check out Cheese Indian Store. Y'all, here's the thing. That's a part of the culture of the area. That's a part of the ambiance of the trip. That's a part of what we're out there doing, exploring and making connections with people. So check out the little shops like this when you go through the desert southwest. Now, with that having been said, let's get on to the petrified forest. 
And with Petrified Forest and the trip back in from Petrified Forest, we'll get on to our commercial break probably in about 10 minutes or so, maybe a little bit longer. So Petrified Forest, you've all heard of it, right? You know it. You love it. It's on the it's on the um, top 25 greatest hits of the National Park Service CD that you could buy from the infomercials back in the 90s that played three in the morning. Remember those? Yeah, it's in the top. You know, it's on that greatest hits collection. Petrified Forest. Everyone's heard of it. It's a super cool place, as I mentioned. I've been there before. Um, I explored it on my way to San Francisco back for Big Purple in the day five years ago, which was actually, I think I mentioned it in the last episode, five years. Five years almost to the day. It was definitely five years to the week. And that was actually kind of interesting because that wasn't planned that way. But Petrified Forest National Monument or National Park along with the Painted Desert within which it resides, makes for a really, really fun day of exploring. Inside Petrified Forest, you not only have petrified wood, you also have the Painted Desert, which can be quite colorful in places, as we will talk about. And you also have a lot of petroglyphs from ancestral Pueblo and also possibly Navajo peoples who all kind of inhabited this region at different times. Um, there's fossils, guys, there's fossils, there's dinosaur fossils, though rare, there are dinosaur fossils, the, I think it's the Triassic period, we'll talk about it in just a second, there's a lot going on in Petrified Forest, as well as the only national park that has a section of the original alignment of Route 66 through it, and also, really, this was like the site of many, many routes west along the 35th parallel, guys. Beals Road, Marcy's Road at some point passed through here. No, Marcy's went to Las Cruces first. Hmm, I may be wrong about that. Don't quote me on that. But Bills Road definitely came through here. Um, one of the very, I mean, guys, they surveyed for one of the very first transcontinental railroad. Do you remember the transcontinental railroad? You know, we learned about it in school, Union Pacific, Golden Spike, you know, up there in the Northern Territories. Little did you know that the original alignment and likely the best alignment and alignment that would have most likely been used had it not been for the Civil War had already been surveyed from my little city here of Fort Smith, Arkansas, directly down the 35th parallel, all the way to the West Coast, essentially, and would have passed right through where I'm at now. And it was by far the most expedient, um, for all intents and purposes, geology and everything considered, transcontinental line. And it was surveyed. And there's a good chance it probably would have ended up being our first transcontinental railroad. But then a little thing called the Civil War happened. And after the Civil War was over five or six years later, people in the North were a little bit like, yo, let's not put one of the most important lifelines we have in the Southern states. So we went with the Northern route. But anyway, there are right now rail lines active that pass right through the heart of Petrified National Forest, and it's a transcontinental line. It is an important thoroughfare. If that goes to show you, you know, it started with, well, what, 66, and it became, an, well, it started with Bill's Road, and then you have, like, other trails that used it. Then you had the 1840, you know, the 49ers going out west in the Gold Rush. Then you had Route 66. Then you had Interstate 40. You've got Transcontinental Railroad. It is a direct line across the country, and it's why I-40 is such a busy corridor and why there's so much history along the way because people have been traveling the 35th parallel almost since, well, absolutely since the dawn of westward expansion. 
So there's a lot of history and there's a lot of fascinating stuff out here. So Petrified Forest encompasses a whole lot of history and it's a very fascinating place to explore. So what can I tell you about the Petrified Forest? Um, first and foremost, let me kind of give you this overview. If you're going to go there, take my advice, if you can, and devote like an entire half day to it, if not a whole day, because there are little hikes within the park where you can get up close and personal with some of those petrified logs, some of the petrified wood right down in like the Blue Mesa area where you can get down in some of that painted desert um, geology where the colors are just astounding, guys. And you can hike through that. You know, that's it's a what a 27 mile driving trip throughout the whole park that alone is going to take a little while. Cause like your maximum speeds, like 35 miles an hour, you know, you're going to be driving for an hour if you don't stop and do anything. But along the way, you have these little hikes where you can get out and explore the petrified forest. You can go and explore the agate bridge. You can explore the uh, Puerco Pueblo, which you can see some, one of the ancestral Pueblo remains and a lot of rock art. You can go to, um, Oh gosh, what it, newspaper rock. And you can see these huge boulders that are inscribed with all these really, really intricately carved petroglyphs. There is a lot, a lot to see in this place. So if you have time, give yourself like an entire day to do it. Guys, you can spend an hour in the visitor center just exploring and picking up all this literature like I have here in front of me right now to help be you know kind of a key for me to play off of to talk about and remember what all I need to mention tonight talking about this place there's so much that is going on there you can spend a whole day there if you're very much interested in things like this so my very first piece of advice is give yourself plenty of time plenty of time like we had basically the whole afternoon, three or four hours, and we probably, we should have allotted more. We could have spent way more time there than we did, um, but we still got to see a lot. But if you're going, try to give yourself plenty of time to do it. And the other thing is take care to note what direction you were coming from to explore the petrified forest, because you have to understand this 27 mile driving trip is not a loop. It does not come back onto itself and you start you know, you stop where you started. No, you end like 27 miles away on a different road. Okay. You drive through this park. Um, and when you enter from interstate 40 itself, literally it's like you exit and there's the parking lot. It's like the exit is just for the petrified national forest. When you exit, there's your parking lot. Okay. When you're on interstate 40, but here's the thing, you end up like 20 some odd miles South of interstate 40 on an old state highway Okay, with where to go? Like, if you were continuing on west and you were heading from the east, if you're coming from my direc direction heading west, that's the best way to do it. Hit it off of Interstate 40. And then when you end, you've just got a short little hop on this old state highway into, I believe it's Holbrook, which we'll get to that in a minute. But if you're coming from the east coast and you're going to continue traveling west beyond the Petrified Forest once you've explored... You're going to want to exit there at Holbrook. Again, if I'm correct on the city, we'll hit that here in a little bit and be certain about it. Um, and go in the south entrance so that you end at Interstate 40 and you can get right back on the highway to wherever it is you need to go. Because if you do not, okay, and you go in on the Interstate 40 entrance, the north entrance, and you are heading from west to east, 
What you're going to find is you've landed on the south side of the park after the drive and the tour is over and you've explored everything and you either have to backtrack 15-20 minutes to the interstate to get back on the interstate or drive way the hell out of your way to get back to Interstate 40. That state highway that you land on, um, when you come out the south entrance, it like in no way, shape, or form expediently gets you back to Interstate 40 as you continue to head east. You basically just have to backtrack, which is what we essentially did um, to get back onto 40. Not backtrack, but go out of our way. Go the opposite direction that we needed to be traveling because that was the most expedient route to get back onto Interstate 40. So take that into account. Coming from west to east, go into the south entrance. If you're coming from east to west, go into the Interstate 40 entrance and your life will be far easier for it. First things first, stop, check out the visitor center, orient yourself to the park. It's a big area, a lot of stuff to see. They have a lot of nice little literature that you can go through really quickly and orient yourself to what the hell you're doing. Speak to the interpreters, people such as myself, except they probably get paid out there and they're not just volunteering and interning. Um, Well, actually, I met an intern out there, or a uh, volunteer, but talk to one of them. Let them orient you. They can do it quick, fast, in a hurry before you get started. Now, when you start your drive, one of the first things you're going to come across is the Painted Desert Inn. And I suggest that you stop and check it out. You're going to go across. There's several overlooks where you can see some of the Painted Desert. And it's in different colors. In this area, there's more reds. Okay, it's very pretty. It's a Badlands type of situation. Um, And there's some good overlooks. Stop and check out some of those big overlooks on the uh, north side of the driving tour, the north side of Interstate 40. And pop into the Painted Desert Inn, at least for a minute, because there's a lot of history in this place that goes all the way back to route, well, pre-Route 66. And then it was a part of Route 66 where the folks had turned it into kind of an oasis in the desert and one of the only places for a billion miles on Route 66 for uh, people to stop in and get something to eat, something to drink, and kind of refuel themselves as they continued on their journey down 66. Then the work, the Civilian Conservation Corps got involved um, because the owners were interested in actually bequeathing it to, like, a state or national park type of situation for caretaking that happened. There's a ton of history in this painted desert inn, and it's got some really cool views of the painted desert. So I highly suggest that you stop and give it a second and check it out. After this, there are going to be a few more turnouts before you get back to basically where you cross over Interstate 40 and start into the southern section of the park. And you have Kachina Point, Pintado Point, um... Lots of little places there are pullouts where you can pull out and see the painted desert, a lot of the overlooks. But then right before you get to 40, there's an interesting little pullout. You will see a rusty old car up on blocks, as it were, setting off to your right. Stop and check that out. What that is, is I believe it's a 32, but it's a 1930s model Studebaker. It is a frame and it's set there on the original alignment of Route 66. Now that pavement for 66 is no longer extant in the park but this car sets there to kind of show you where the alignment was and if that wasn't enough you can look to your left and see a long row of telegraph poles not telephone poles as it were or anything in our modern vernacular but actual telegraph poles for the use of a telegraph service which went alongside most railroads and a lot of our highways back in the day those poles still exist right there in the park, lining and demarcating for you. 
the original alignment of 66, and many of them still have the glass insulator balls on them. It's a great place for a photo opportunity. I got a good photo of it that you can go see on my Instagram um, this time, which I rendered in like black and white, I'm pretty sure. Um, but I also have one, if you went back far enough in my timeline years ago, to find with first time I was there. That's one of my favorite pictures. You know, it's up high on my list of favorite pictures that I got there just because the atmosphere there that day really, really made for a very ominous and interesting shot of that car. But it's a great place to get your pictures. Then you head on south to the other major points along the way. And they are in order. Well, one, you cross the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railway, which I only bring that up in this episode to point out as we crossed, I looked down and saw train cars all over the ground. And so we stopped right there on the bridge because I was like, Oh my God, that's a train derailment. And sure enough, it was, it had happened like a day before, two days before this is a major transcon line, shut down the entire trains, transcon, including Amtrak passenger service for like 18 hours or something or 12 hours. When it happened, we finally found some stuff on it online. It was a big container train and boy, that guy went down. Like several cars, they were all over the place. There were bananas everywhere. Apparently it was hauling bananas. Anyway, I got a bunch of pictures of that. That was just really interesting to see a big train derailment from an aerial view, a bird's eye view, no less, right there off of that bridge. But beyond that, the very next thing you hit is the Puerco Pueblo, which we just talked about. There you will find the foundational ruins of Puerco Pueblo, and you will also find some great rock art to explore. Short little hike easy hike, nothing hard on you, very accessible. Get out and explore that and see some of the history of the peoples that lived in that area. Can you imagine y'all trying to scratch out a life out there in that high desert and those plains? Boy, I can't. Man, I can't. The Puercos River is right close by, which is why it's called Puerco Pueblo. Um, So they did have a water source and that helps things. But y'all, that is in inhospitable land. There's not a lot to eat out there. There's not a lot to grow. It's kind of mind boggling the way those people lived and how hardy they were. Um, and just down a freaking hop, skip and a jump is newspaper rock. And it is totally worth stopping to get out and go and explore. You have to look through telescopes. Actually, believe it or not, through those telescopes, you can see it yeah, so well. Um, and everyone has to take their turn, but I actually found by zooming in with my phone camera, I could see them far more clearly and actually got some pretty clear defined shots of those rocks, even though they were far distant, but something definitely worth stopping to check out. It really give you an idea, um, of kind of the, the art of the day. And it wasn't even just art, you know, these may very well have been the histories of the people. And that's how a lot of the people in the area consider them as this was their history. This is how they recorded it. Um, they're very, very important and sacred places and totally worth stopping to check out. Um, beyond this, you're going to run into Blue Mesa, the Agate Bridge further down from Blue Mesa and the Jasper Forest. Blue Mesa is somewhere you're going to want to check out. You're going to want to take the hike into it. If you have time, a lot that time, like I said, you're going to want to check out Blue Mesa. Very, very interesting place um, with beautiful beautiful views and just crazy kind of dark hued purples and blues. And if you're there at the right time of day, especially late in the afternoon, like we were guys, you want to talk about, get some magical effects, some magical looking pictures that you don't even hardly have to edit to make them look like just absolutely popping. Um, 
hike into Blue Mesa. It's absolutely gorgeous. Or you can drive up to the overlook above it, and you can also get some really, really stunning panoramas kind of of the landscape from above. And boy, that's a really, really good angle to get some of those colors as well. Um, after that, Jasper Forest, Agate Bridge. Check out the Agate Bridge. Now, it's kind of weird and wonky today because back in the 1920s, I believe, or maybe, gosh, it might have been the teens, um, they actually built a concrete kind of support underneath this agate tree. Like it's literally a petrified tree that spanned a gully and it was just hanging there. And I'm sure it was really awesome to see in real life at the time. But now, well, there's like this big concrete support beam under it that was put there like, like over a hundred years ago, but it was necessary. Like that's the thing is it was necessary or it would have done like every one of the other trees whenever enough pressure was exposed or enough of the tree was exposed this stuff's like 200 pounds per square foot it's literally crystallized mineralized wood that's turned to rock right it's crystal um it's like 200 pounds per square foot so because it's crystal and it weighs so much and it's so dense it just shears right off at natural fracture points because that's how crystal is that's the way it cleaves and it just drops right off so they basically built this concrete underneath it in order to support it so you could at least always see it the way it was in the beginning. Um, it's really interesting, but it's understandable why they did what they did. Otherwise, it would have just been lost and rolled down into the valley with all the other chunks of the petrified trunks, right? But it's totally worth stopping to check out. Um, and the Crystal Forest. Crystal Forest is where you are going to get the most up close and personal with some of this petrified wood. And it will boggle your mind, guys. This stuff is truly, well, it's really, I mean, it looks like wood. It's just multicolored wood. It's really beautiful multicolored wood, to be quite honest. Um, it's got reds. It's got purples and blues. Like if you look hard enough, you'll find these things. And the freaking trunks are huge, man. Like, you can go see some of the pictures I took of them. The trunks are huge. These giant, just, it almost looks like somebody cut them with a chainsaw, which they did not, I assure you. Um, again, that's the way quartz cleaves. It's really fascinating. It's really fascinating. Um, but these things, incredibly awesome to see up close and personal, to see with your own eyes, to put your hands on, to touch. Like, literally, you can feel this bark, and you can see the bark. It looks like bark on a tree. But it's crystal. It's rock. It's, I mean, I say crystal. It's sort of crystal. It's weird. Like, I don't know. Let me see here. Okay, I didn't pull that out in front of me. But it's crystal, but it's not crystal. It's kind of crystalline, but it's really mineralized. It's more like a mineralized wood. And this stuff is heavy. It's petrified wood. It's a freaking rock. But it looks just like a tree because it was like 227 million years ago. It's really, really fascinating. If that stuff interests you, you need to get in there and you need to check it out because you can't really get that up close and personal with it um, just about anywhere else. There are other petrified forests. There's one in Mississippi, for a matter of fact. I learned years ago when I was working in Mississippi for FedEx. Um, and we even have petrified trees all over Arkansas and Oklahoma in the coal fields. Um, but not like this and not protected and not accessible in this way. Um, so this is really, really interesting stuff. And the crystal forest is the place in this whole park. You can see this stuff everywhere. You're going to see some of it when you go around and hike around Blue Mesa. 
But Crystal Forest is really the place where you can get the closest to it and the most of it and really kind of get to spend some time contemplating it and taking pictures of it if that's really what you're after. And also at this point, at this place, is where one of those moments that I talk to you guys about all the time happened. Those moments that if you're not out there exploring, if you're not out there adventuring, you're never going to see them happen. The only way you can see them is if you're there to experience it or go look at my Instagram post, which is not the preferred way for you to see it. I don't want you to have to see it through a picture. I want you to see it with your own eyes because the pictures that are taken of any of these things, as fun as they are to look at when we go online and we look at these things, as fun as they are to look at, as beautiful as they might be rendered, as over Edited as some of these people do it and the whole world just eats it up. Oh my God, just crank the HDR to 11. It doesn't matter how stupidly unnatural it looks. People just go gaga over it. Like the art, the art is dead. The art is dead. Anyway, that's still not the best way to experience it. If you're there, these moments where you see things like this, they actually have a deeper meaning. They really hit you on a different level. And you really feel like you're experiencing something. You really feel like you're seeing and experiencing with your own senses something really special. And we had one of those moments right here at the Crystal Forest. And what that moment was, was as I turned around, there was like a high, high layer of cirrostratus clouds, um, which are great for creating sun dogs. Um, Here in Arkansas, if you see a sun dog in the summer, you're going to have storms in the next day or two. If you see one in the winter, you're going to have frozen precipitation in the next day or two. What is a sun dog? For any of you who might be unaware or out there in other countries and don't use the same terminology as us, they are halos around the sun or the moon. The moon would be obviously moon dogs. Um, But they're halos that appear when the sunlight passes through these high, high, high layers of like cirrostratus moisture and clouds in the atmosphere. And you get this halo effect and it can be gorgeous. The one we saw, I turned around and looked back to the sunset and I was like, oh my God, look at that. There's rainbow colors in the sky. And there was absolutely this like half arch looking rainbow in the sky, but it wasn't a real rainbow after a rainstorm. I mean, it's a real rainbow because it looks like a rainbow and it's in the sky, right? But it wasn't like a typical rainbow. It was a rainbow that was showing up through my polarized sunglasses on the horizon on this giant sun dog in the Arizona desert. And it was gorgeous. And not only was it gorgeous, it was framing this butte this flat topped butte almost perfectly. And all it took was me noticing it and taking off in the general direction so that I could get the proper perspective to frame this butte perfectly in this sun dog aura. And other people started to notice. And that's one of my favorite things about noticing things out there and starting to do something about trying to capture it is that gets other people's noses out of their damn phones. And they suddenly look up and go, what is that guy on about? What are you playing at? What is that guy after? And then they start looking in the direction that you're looking. And then suddenly they are unburied from their stupid life ruining phones. And they're actually looking at real life happening around them. I love that. People were all of a sudden turning around. Everyone was trying to get pictures. Everyone was pointing it out to other people. Like there were people starting to notice this 
gorgeous sun dog and it's like just happenstance alignment with this butte and like that just makes me happy because for five minutes that day people lived real life for a minute instead of through their phones anyway anyway you can go over and see this sun dog on my instagram account again just go find it and i'm not going to say the instagram again but you can go to waywardstories.com and you can see it all from there anyway it's the easiest way and you can go see the picture of this sun dog and see what you missed if you weren't out there with me that day with us at the crystal forest tromping around in the arizona desert in the petrified national forest that's what you missed and that's fine because you know what you couldn't be there that day that's fine but the point is Get out of your house and go live, guys. Get out of your house and go live. Because those things happen every single day in our world, in our atmosphere, on this planet. Things like that happen somewhere every single day. And the only way you're ever going to experience it yourself is if you are there to see it yourself. That's what it's all about. Get out there and experience it and live. Anyway. What is up, all of you wayward souls? I want to tell you guys about our newest sponsor, Bendetti Optics a brand based right here in the good old US of A, Portland, Oregon, to be exact. And I bought my first pair of Bendetti sunglasses about a year and a half ago and fell in love with them so much so that I got online and ordered a couple more pair. And when I did, there was a small shipping snafu, an order fulfillment snafu, and I got on the phone, gave them a call, and guess what? I get a call back from who? One of the big men themselves right there in Portland from the top of the chain, have a great conversation, and we end up starting this great relationship we have. They more than made right, the little snafu that occurred, and I am now a huge proponent of them because I can tell you from personal experience, they are good people, and they are trying to compete with the big boys out there coming in at a price point of about $40, but using the exact same frame material, TR90, and the same polarization process as the big guys. As it turns out, something I think we are already probably knew in our hearts, when you buy big name sunglasses, you're buying a big name, not necessarily any more quality than you can get somewhere else, like at Bendetti Optics. They have 29 different styles. They have multiple polarization options for whatever climate you happen to live in. And they back it up with like this lifetime guarantee that if your dog eats your sunglasses, it doesn't matter how you break them. Send it back in with a check to cover shipping and handling and you're golden. You got a new pair on the way. These guys are truly trying to do it right. And they have this philosophy that a really good pair of sunglasses should not cost you so much that you are afraid to wear them. And I think all of us outdoorsmen can relate to that. So if you guys, like me, are very practical and like to get more bang for your buck and wear some great looking sunglasses, check out BendettiOptics.com. That's B-E-N-D-E-T-T-I Optics.com. Or you can go over to Instagram slash Optics. And that I highly suggest whether you buy a pair or not, just to check out the cutest pupper you'll ever see modeling sunglasses. Once again, that's BendettiOptics.com. And make sure and let them know Wayward Stories sent you. Anyway, we're going to move on from that part because, God, guys, it's looking like this may be the whole episode tonight. We're at 52 minutes. I pump out our episodes. This may actually be tonight's episode. I don't know. Crap. I don't know if that'll work out. Anyway, we're just going to keep rolling because here we are. We've already done this much. I don't know what else I'm going to do. Um. Anyway, moving on. From there, you can head on down and basically find your way out of the park. There are a couple of more hikes that you can take. 
Long Logs and the Agate House are at the end of the trip. We did not get to go out there because, again, I just told you it was sunset. We were running out of time for the day. We did not get to hike out there. Um, That's a pretty decent little hike involved with that. And you can see the Agate House, which is a reconstructed version of, I believe it was a Pueblo that was built out of petrified wood. Anyway, you can look those things up if you want to explore those. And again, allocate more time. If you want to explore all this yourself firsthand and at the end, you find yourself at the south entrance of the park where there is another visitor center. There is a petrified forest museum there and ready to be accessed. And at that point, you have finished. You have completed exploring the petrified national forest. Um, now from here, where do you go for us? It did not make sense to head back to the east towards Albuquerque from this location because that road in no way, again, I mentioned, expediently gets you back to Interstate 40. So what we did is we traveled on up to Holbrook. Yes, it is Holbrook as the closest town. And Holbrook also has a really good little section of Route 66 to explore. So you can go on up to Holbrook from there. And you can explore a little bit more of Route 66. They happen to have the very famous Wigwam Hotel, which is the hotel that has all the giant concrete Indian teepees that you can sleep in. It also happened to have classic cars parked in front of each one of those teepees. It's a very, very neat place. It's very photogenic. It's very Route 66, and it's a perfect place to get pictures or selfies for your Instagram if you're out there exploring Route 66. Holbrook's a nice town. And after we explored the Wigwam Hotel and took a couple of pictures, it was time to hit Interstate 40 and start heading back on the three-plus-hour drive to Albuquerque, which I think was three and a half, actually. Um, but we did have to stop and we didn't have to get dinner, right? So we kicked it back down 40 and we went ahead and we stopped again in Gallup and we found ourselves the most authentic little Tex-Mex eating establishment that we could find. And that was Jerry's Cafe. Now that doesn't necessarily sound extremely authentic, does it? Jerry's Cafe. That sounds like something that's like freaking honest Frosties used Christmas trees, right? It's like, come by Jerry's used car lot. That's kind of what it sounds like. But listen, man, this place was legit. It is like here in Arkansas, it's what we would call a greasy spoon of a sort. And those are the places you want to eat. If you ever come visit us in Arkansas or anywhere in the South, you want to find those old greasy spoons that are still cooking on the old cast iron stove from 1945 that's seasoned 60 years worth of seasoned. And you want to talk about the best burgers, the best fries, the best chicken fried steaks you'll ever find. Well, this, I feel like this is New Mexico's version of the Greasy Spoon Cafe. It is authentic as it gets. And they had absolutely incredible, authentic New Mexican food. Guys, and also the New Mexican chili cartel struck again, resulting in acute gastrointestinal distress. But it was worth it. It was worth it. Cruising down Interstate 40 with the windows down and 30 degree weather because you had to (laughs) was worth it. It was so good. This is what I learned out there, guys. Like those chilies will light you aflame. Our, our freaking gringo intestines can't handle it. But let me tell you something. The flavor is freaking outstanding. I'm not joking. It's a different world. They're real food with real ingredients and those chilies, they make the freaking difference. It was so, so, so good. Jerry's like, we agreed, Jessica and I agreed. Like kind of bar none, Jerry's took the cake out of everything we ate out there over our trip, including Sadie's and anything else. 
Jerry's took the cake. It was absolutely stunningly killer. I'm running out of freaking adjectives here. I'm running out of descriptors like it really was. And it was just this tiny, tiny, tiny little cafe, y'all. Tiny little cafe in Gallup. You couldn't really hardly get over to the bathroom. You had to walk through like part of the kitchen serving area just to get over to this tiny little bathroom area. It was perfect. It was perfect. Also, they had beautiful Christmas lights still up. Because again, that was the week after Christmas and it was gorgeous. Again, part of the local culture, like we've talked about before part of the local culture and part of the current culture that is informed by the more ancient cultures, the historic cultures, both the proto-historic and the prehistoric cultures. All of that really comes in a line because that area is so ancient. The ancestral Puebloan people literally have roots there that have come all the way to the present day and inform those very chilies that you were putting into your stomach and regretting every second of, but not regretting at all, goes all the way back to those ancestral Pueblo people. That's how deep the roots run. And that's what you're experiencing when you go out there and do these things for yourself. Anyway, it was awesome. Um, Jerry's was so, so good. And the final thing on day four, as we made our way back in to Albuquerque is When you're coming back into Albuquerque, you find yourself on a high point on Interstate 40 as you descend into a valley of sorts into Albuquerque. And I just want to say, doing that late at night with the lights of Albuquerque before you is like a magical experience. It really was. It wasn't really anything short of being somewhat magical. The way those lights glisten at that altitude... um. Out in the vast, dark desert, there's no like light pollution out there except for Albuquerque, right? And that's what you're looking down on. There was something really magical about it descending into Albuquerque in the high desert. Like Those are the moments you live for. Those are the moments that road trips are all about. And I absolutely love that. Anyway, what I think we're going to do here is keep rolling and make this one long episode. I don't think we'll go beyond an hour and a half. Um... I think either way, we wrap up this episode within the next 30 minutes because we're going straight into day five. So that's what we're going to do. You're peek behind the curtain. You're watching me improvise on the fly because I don't see getting an entire episode out of day five, even though it's super fascinating day. So from the travel journal, moving into day five, after we got back to our hotel and recovered from an absolutely enormous day for it. Guys, that day was long. We started early. We started very early and we ended up back at nine, 10 o'clock at night. It was like a 16 hour day. We ran the tires off of old Clemmy and she did us well at about 36 miles to the gallon was the average. So Subi Colt, Subi Colt, hundred percent on board all the way to the grave. Anyway, Day five, what did we set out to do on day five? Well, day five was meant to explore a little place that I had dug up through some research called the Kelly Mine. What is the Kelly Mine? Well, the Kelly Mine is accompanied by a little place um, called Kelly. That was the town that the mine was a part of. And um, both of them are abandoned. It is a ghost town, the Kelly Ghost Town and the Abandoned Mine. These exist in the Magdalena Mountains to the south and west-ish of Albuquerque, about an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes, um, and directly west of Socorro, New Mexico, which is directly south, ostensibly, 
right? Actually, I didn't use that right, but it sounds smart, um, of Albuquerque. So we were going to set out and we were going to go explore this mine because what I could find online is the infrastructure of this very mine was still extant in place to be explored and open to explore without being like trespassing. It was totally legal to do. So this was exciting because this is the kind of stuff I absolutely love. Really, really, really exploring abandoned places, abandoned structures. Super excited about this. So we set out to go and do this. As we headed down, we made it to Socorro and we kicked it out of Socorro heading west. And as we were heading west out of Socorro, we came across this beautiful little box canyon. It was really, really picturesque countryside, guys. Like it was very bucolic. It was beautiful countryside. You're out kind of in the higher desert. You're in the flatter plains of the desert for a good part of this. But you're coming upon the mountains, the Magdalena Mountains, where Kelly is located. Magdalena is located. But as you're traveling west, you know, you're still in these plains and they're very, very beautiful. But then all of a sudden you start to see like these low-lying rock outcroppings and we come across this little bridge and I look off to my left up the creek or up the bed of this. And I'm looking into this giant box Canyon that absolutely looks awesome. And I was like, Holy crap. Did you see that? That looks so cool. Which she, Jessica did not. But I was like, did you see that? Looks awesome. But as we come off the other side of the bridge, we see a giant Brown sign, the kind of signs that tell you the National Forest or the National Parks or the National something, the Bureau of Land Management says there's something interesting here to see. And it just says on this sign, the box. Okay, well, what's the box? Let's find out. So on our way to adventure, the Kelly Mine, we took a little sidetrack adventure down to the box. Just like a, not even a mile off of the main road on Highway 60, which we'll talk a little bit about here in just a few minutes, um, headed out towards Magdalena, there's a place called The Box. And it is worth your time to explore, guys, because we whipped in there to check out this little box canyon that's not very long in this section where you can go in and explore. It is a BLM-managed area, and it is just a gorgeous, steep-sided, rock-cliff-faced, cave-ridden box canyon called The Box which I guess makes sense. It's super creative. Anyway, what we found in the box. Number one, if you're into rock climbing, you can do that there. I'm sure rappelling can be done as well. We saw a lot of anchor points in the sides of these sheer cliff faces. But if you're not into that, there's stuff that you can still find and explore. Number one, you're walking through a wash, which you should be aware of if there are thunderstorms in the area or it's the right time of year, because that's the kind of place that will flash flood really fast and kill you. But no such thing was happening on the day that we were exploring. And as we walked down in the deep, man, this is a deep box, right? You're looking up at the edges all around you. And as we were down there at the bottom of that, looking around and just taking in how dramatically beautiful it was, I noticed caves. We noticed caves all around the periphery up of the upper level of the box. Like there's this whole like talus pile basically of just stuff that's kind of fallen down and eroded off over the years. That's like at a super steep angle, right? It's not like you can just, it's not a grassy knoll. It's very, very steep, but it's just eroded rocks. It's just a talus pile. It's just a rock of, of refuse that's coming off the mountain, um, rocks, piles of refuse. And it's very steep, very loose rock, a lot of gravelly, a lot of dirt, a lot of big little softball sized boulders in it. But right where the bench is currently, 
where the steep-sided bluff face sits, there were caves. And I looked at one of those caves, well, several of those caves, and I was like, I think I can get to that. I'm going to go try to get to that. So I picked one of just the group. I just picked one randomly, and it ended up that I picked the right one. Because after I scrambled up this giant incline and took a minute to get my breath, because it was no easy task, I walked into this cave, and this cave was really cool. It wasn't extremely deep, and I was even talking about it. I made a video of it. Go over to my YouTube. Well, you're watching us on YouTube. Go back a couple of videos and find Exploring the Box. That's the video. You will see what we got into that day, okay? Go just go check it out as soon as you're finished with this podcast. But inside that cave, I was remarking like, this just reeks of a rock house, of a rock shelter. Like, this is the kind of place you would expect to find ancient human habitation. And sure enough, no sooner than I'm like crawled into the back of that cave and I'm trying to crawl back out, I see a little post with a little sign on it, a little tiny little square sign. And I said, you know what, that right there looks a whole lot like an archaeological like a cultural resources do not disturb sign. Please respect our resources. And as I walked upon them, I discovered that it was. And I was starting to remark in that video, like it's probably, you know, under this cave floor. That's where you're going to find if there was habitation here. And then I realized, no, it was right in my face. It was pictographs. It was painted walls with pictographs. Ancestral Puebloan people had painted there at God knows what time. I wasn't able to get into the research that deep for this particular area, but it matches everything we had seen at Petroglyph National Monument, over at um, Petrified Forest National Monument, up at Bandelier, like it matched it. It's going to be from the same time frames, from the same people, y'all. It's exactly what it is. And like, we just stumbled into this box canyon and found this And it was so cool. Like it was such a moment. That's what the exploration, that's what the adventure is all about, guys. Get out there and just find stuff. See what you get into. So stopping off at the box, finding it by accident and stopping off there to explore it was like so worth the sidetrack. And that's what these road trips, they need to be about, man, is get out there and explore. It was so, so, so cool. Like, so cool. You guys, if you ever get the chance, you're anywhere near Socorro, New Mexico, you need to get out there and check out the box. But we had to move on because daylight fades fast out there, you know. You get into the mountains and daylight ends at 5 o'clock. So we had to carry on. And we carried on down to Magdalena. When we got to Magdalena... We stomped off at their quote-unquote visitor center, which is kind of a little shop that a local shop owner has, and he functioned, as best I can tell, as the de facto historian and, well, welcome center guide. And he was a very cool man. His name was his name was James Chavez, and he is a guy that has lived there his whole life, and his family had lived there for generations back. He knows the history of this place like the back of his hand. He was just reeling off fact after fact after fact. And he was absolutely enthralling. Like, I mean, he had our attention for probably 15 or 20 minutes and we were trying to get on, but also this guy had interesting stories to tell. He told us about his family in the area. He told us about early Spanish um, missionaries, about conquistadors in the early days. Like you're down into, you know, the portions of Southern, Central, Western New Mexico, where this is the culture, this is the stuff that played back 400 years ago, 500 years ago. We talked about it in the last episode with that church up in Santa Fe, man. Like that thing alone, the whole area, they'd been there since what, the 1600s? 
and a mission. Like Santa Fe is apparently like the second oldest city in the United States after St. Augustine in Florida. Like this is where you're at. And these are the people you're going to meet. So this is the culture that you're experiencing. And the modern version of it is there to still be seen. And it is absolutely informed and flavored by what came before. And this guy, James, at the Magdalena Welcome Center, he had it, man. He had it all. And this is the best thing you could ever hope to get into is finding a guy like this in a little quasi-museum slash trinket shop of a sort that's a welcome center and he's the guy he's and he was the perfect guy to be magdalena's welcome wagon he told us all about the kelly mine and the ghost town and the santa fe railway coming to magdalena in the 1800s and how magdalena was so important in that day because people were driving head of cattle from as far away as Arizona to this railhead in Magdalena, which was a spur line from the Santa Fe Railway it built in like 1885 and shipping their beef all the way to the East Coast and feeding the East Coast of the United States in the 1880s via the rail connection and their cattle yard, their loading yard for the cattle, the stockyards, which are still there. The railroad tracks are torn up, but you can go down yourself and see the stock pins where all of those cattle were. It even says in their little like welcome brochure, something to the effect of if you close your eyes and imagine you can almost smell the sheep and the cattle around you. And I'm like, yo, I just was in Amarillo like three days ago. It's not that hard to imagine the freaking cattle around me. It's a wretched smell, but super cool place to check out if you're into history and if you're just into culture like these little places are so cool so once we finally were able to tear ourselves away from james and let me tell you something james drives a hard bargain where's it at i asked him he showed me a railroad spike from the santa fe railway and i love railroads you guys know this i love railroad history i've got a spike from the cotton belt i picked up in south arkansas just a couple of months ago um, that was, it's really cool to me because those little railroad spikes, they represent something. They represent commerce. They represent westward expansion. They represent a lot of pain and agony for minorities. They represent a very broad range of history, both good and bad. Um, and railroads are just fascinating to me. So he showed me this railroad spike and I looked at him and I said, do you happen to have any more of those railroad spikes? Um, cause the or the Santa Fe tore up those tracks when they discontinued service in the 1970s, I believe. These spikes, guys, are from 1885. These would have been, and look at this thing. You can tell by looking at it. It's heavily weathered. It's heavily rusted. This is an ancient spike. This is an old one. This is from the early days. And I was like, do you happen to have any more of those spikes there, Mr. Chavez, sir, Mr. James? He's like, yeah, I've got three or four. And I was like, how much would it take for me to get one of those from you? He's like, well, you know, I don't even know, you know what one of these are worth. And uh, I was like, well, I just bought one a few weeks ago from the uh, plantation, Arkansas State Parks Plantation Museum in southwestern Arkansas. And they were going about $3 a piece out there. And he's like, oh, well, now there aren't many of these here. I ain't got that many. And I knew that I was getting played at this point. Understand this. I'm I'm not a rube. Um, I'm not naive. I knew I was getting played. But I really like this guy. And I was like, well, I'll tell you what. How about a $5 bill? And he's like, well, and he's like, you know, 10 sounds better. And I ended up paying $10 for this railroad spike that's old as dirt. But you know what? It's worth every penny. 
because I think we had a very meaningful human interaction that day. And even though, even though I got gouged for this spike because I was a tourist, I did so willingly. And I knew what was happening the whole time. And I like this. This goes on my shelf of keepsakes. And these are the kind of keepsakes I want. I got magnets all over my fridge, but I like these things better. This is a part of the history right here. Anyway, if you go and see Mr. James, make sure and tell him hi. Tell him old wayward son sent you down there to explore and made sure to tell you to stop by and talk to him. But from there, we took his directions plus the directions we found online and we headed up to the Kelly Mine in Ghost Town. What you will find up there is an old church, which I don't know how old it is. It's got a date on it, which was in the 1980s, but I'm assuming that's when it was like renovated, remodeled, restored, or saved in some way or another, because the town of Kelly itself goes back to the 1880s. Um, and it's a ghost town proper in that there's no longer a town there. However, there's also no buildings for the town itself there, only a lot of foundations. There's a lot to explore. If you got a lot of time, guys, there's a lot to explore in Matt and uh, Kelly. Um, but what does remain is the head frame for the mine shaft itself. The head frame, I believe one of the, like the loading, like the ore bins is right there next to it. There is a lot of infrastructure. The brick kiln, like where they would have fired the ore, like there's talus piles everywhere. There's refuse piles of this stuff. Like guys, tailings piles, not talus, tailings piles. Guys, this is what you want to find to explore. Like it's accessible. You could drive a freaking normal car, guys. You could drive like a sedan most of the way to it, to be honest. It gets dirty. It gets rocky. If it was wet, you might get stuck in the mud. You might want a four-wheel drive. But generally speaking... Once you get out of the tiny little paved road to this tiny little town of Magdalena, you know, it's a pretty darn good road on up to where that church is. And that's where you're going to want to park. There's plenty of room to park. And then you're going to hike like a quarter of a mile, maybe at most, to get to the actual head frame. Now, there are other mines all over this mountain that you could conceivably get to and other people have. You can explore a big section of this mountain. But this head frame at the Kelly mine, I believe it's called the tri, the tri ore mine. I believe it was something like that. Cause they pulled like three main ores out of there. I want to say that's what he was calling it. This is impressive. If you've got the cojones, you can climb up this ladder to the top of that. I almost did it, but I noticed the ladder was broken and off kilter at the top. And also there was no cross bracing. So as I climbed up, the higher I got, I got about 15 feet off the ground. I was bouncing. I mean, it was like slapping kind of up and down because there was no cross bracing. So considering that I have a nine-year-old daughter at home that, for better or worse, needs her father, I wouldn't go in any higher than that. But for those of you out there that are a um, little more, well, say younger than me, who are willing to do stupider things than I am and have less to live for, go give it a shot. That's all I'm saying. Here's the thing about that place. Extremely, extremely picturesque awesome for pictures. It reminded me so much of being in Colorado, so much when I was up there exploring those old abandoned mines. This is it. This is the same thing. This place though is dangerous. And I mean that. Not like some of these people on YouTube who go to places that are not dangerous at all and try to make it sound like they're dangerous because somehow they feel like that makes them cool online. No, this is truly dangerous. And I'm going to tell you why the Kelly mine is truly dangerous. Because as you walk up to the bottom of the head frame, which was apparently designed by Gustav Eiffel, which you may have heard of him, 
he he made like a really famous tower one time um somewhere overseas i don't remember whatever <laughs> anyway there's like nothing stopping you from stepping into the mine that sounds cool right Except here's the thing. It's a vertical shaft mine. It's not like when you walk into and you're like, oh, look, I'm in a mine. No, this is more like you walk into it and you scream until no one can hear you anymore because you're falling straight down into a freaking dark abyss. And that's no joke. I could walk right up to it. It had like an old chicken wire fence kind of thing, maybe a goat fence that had been around it just for some amount of safety. But it was knocked down, as you would expect. Anyone's going to knock that down and get close to the mine. Um, And it was knocked down. And you could walk literally right up to it, just like you could walk up to, say, a swimming pool in your backyard, an in-ground pool, and you could just step off into it if you wanted to. So I tested it, not by stepping off into it, but by throwing a rock in. And I listened, and I counted off, and I got to like seven or eight seconds, and I finally heard a little click, and I thought, oh, wow, that's way down there. And as I was riding myself to get away from that damn hole, six, seven seconds later, I hear another click and I thought, oh my God, it's still falling. So upon inspection and further research, come to discover, according to the state of New Mexico, it is an 1100 foot deep vertical shaft. You heard that right. 1100 feet, which would be, if my math serves, I did homework all day and I may freaking butcher this. So don't make fun of me. If I do, wouldn't that be 110 stories? 1,100 feet. Any way around it, you could drop right in. And I'm curious as what the hell is at the bottom of that hole. Because I bet you there's a lot of stuff. And I wonder if any of it ain't missing persons. Do y'all watch Breaking Bad? Come on. Anyway, you can walk right up to that hole, look right down in it. And if you wanted to, you could fall right down in it. So be extremely careful. If you take children, if you ever go out there and explore, and a lot of you take your children and let your children explore, and that's awesome. And I love that. Do keep an eye on them because they will go missing and you'll never find them again. And I'm not overstating that. It is a horrible, horrible thing that could happen to anyone that stepped into that hole. But you still need to go check out the Kelly Mine and explore it because you can get some awesome pictures. There's stuff everywhere you look, guys. There's foundations everywhere. In addition to this like orbin and the head frame, there's foundations everywhere. There's pieces of busted glass. We found pieces of ceramics. We found pieces of like ceramic light fixtures that are from, you know, 1920, 19 teens, like just laying around everywhere. A super awesome place. This is the kind of adventures you want to get in, guys. The Kelly Mine and the old Kelly Ghost Town right down there, just three miles south of Magdalena, New Mexico, just west of Socorro. Totally, totally worth the trip. Totally worth exploring. Also, by the way, be mindful this is not, I mean, I have to tell this story because I can't not tell this story. This is one of those things that happen and you cannot not tell the story if you were like basically this close to the story, but it's not to make Magdalena look bad by any means. But as we were coming down and we came back into Magdalena proper, which is just a couple of square blocks of not much. It's a very, very tiny town out there. We saw lots and lots of flashy police lights. As we came up on this intersection where they were lining the other side of the road, we realized there were quite a few flashy police lights. As we passed through the intersection and looked down the road that they had barricaded, we saw ambulances and many police cars surrounding the front of a house and lots of cops with hot weapons pointed at the house. 
that was a bit unnerving. I was like, let's get out of here. That's a whole lot of hot guns. That's a lot of hot weapons. Aimed in the general direction we're traveling, actually. Not really directly at us, but they're pointing north and we're heading north. And you know what? Stray bullets are real things. That looks very bad. Let's get out of here. And we did. So it took two days before we were able to find out what was going on there. We were Googling that night, I assure you. took two days to find out what was going on there. And what was going on there was by no means a little ordeal. It was a situation where somebody had killed two people and barricaded himself in that house and every cop in the state of New Mexico showed up as they do, as you would expect them to. And we were within, I'm talking literally 50 yards of the house and the front door of the house where this guy was barricaded driving by on this street because they were, this was like a developing situation that wasn't happening an hour before when we started up the mountain. You understand? We even did some of the timeline reconstruction of what we could find in the news about. And we looked at our pictures of when we were at um, with James down at the little welcome center in his little shop. And I mean, we're talking we were driving through there about the time that guy was murdering people. And then we get up there. We fart around, take our videos, which you can go see over at my YouTube channel. Go check out my video of going to the Kelly mine and you'll see everything I'm talking about. While that was all happening, this guy's like murdering people, barricading them in a house, and every cop in the state is trying to get there and show up. So we drove through the middle of basically an active scene because, like, they're in the middle of, like, trying to keep this guy from getting away, whatever, you know, and we just happened to be driving down the only road that comes off that mountain and gets out of town. And we were within, like, I would say 50 to 75 yards, maybe less, guys. Like, it was creepy how close it was. There were a lot of hot guns. A lot of hot weapons. Crazy. It was crazy. But anyway, I don't tell that to disparage Magdalena. It happens everywhere. I live in Arkansas, for God's sakes. It happens everywhere. But it's one of those stories you can't not tell. Like, you brush that close to it. You can't not tell that story. Anyway, let's move on out of Magdalena and move on towards wrapping this show up. What else did I miss anything? Nope. James Conrad or James Chavez was awesome. Magdalena is a super cool little town with a crap ton of history that you need to explore. You need to go up to the Kelly mine and the, um, Kelly ghost town and explore. There's tons there to see. Um, the last thing we really did was we went out to the very large array. Maybe you've seen it. Did you ever watch the movie contact? All those giant satellites, I believe there are 27 of them in all, that they have out in the that great giant plain, which is apparently like over 100 square miles or something, where it's just flat as hell, surrounded by mountains, which basically completely protects it from outside electromagnetic interference like cell phones, TV transmissions, radio stations. It's a dead zone in the United States, which is perfect for radio Um radio telescopic viewing of the skies. And they've got this giant array that they can actually put these giant dishes. And if you haven't seen it, just Google very large array. You'll see the pictures and go, oh, I know what the hell that is. I've seen it somewhere at some point. It's kind of a famous iconic image. Crap ton of ginormous satellites, like building size satellites. And they can point at the same place in the sky and by spreading them out via a network of railroad tracks that go across this freaking table flat basin for like 55 miles. I'm not joking. That's the number. 
there's a road that goes right across that basin, and I'm guaranteeing you it's 55 miles in a straight line with no deviations. You could see almost to the end of it. You could see the mountains on the other end. We saw the very large array from nine miles away, guys, when we entered that basin. Nine miles. We clocked it. We clocked it. Nine miles away. Then two off of the highway. So that's like 11 miles away. You could see this. It was crazy. That alone was super cool. Also, there were a million. I mean, I don't know. I'm assuming they're antelopes. They're antelopes. There are antelopes everywhere. They look kind of like something a little bit different that I've seen somewhere before, but they like have to be antelope. Anyway, there are antelopes everywhere. Um, but anyway, you can go out there, pay you six bucks, and you can explore all about what the very large array is. It's very much a tourist attraction to go check out. There's real science happening there. They're doing really important scientific things there, but it absolutely has a museum, and you can walk out to the base of one of those giant telescopes, radio telescopes. And it's just, it's fascinating. We actually were lucky because we were there and all of a sudden we heard this really loud humming noise and we noticed every single one of those telescopes because they had them in the configuration where they're all kind of like centralized right there in the valley all together. They were all turning towards a different portion of the sky in sync. It was the coolest thing ever. And it was happening while we were standing there. We didn't even have time. I pulled up and started to video it. But by the time I got my senses that, oh, I can video this, they had already like basically hit the end and I only got like three seconds, four seconds of it. And it was kind of pointless. But anyway, you can also go see pictures of that over on the website or my Instagram. Um, but that was one of those things. It's only 30 minutes from Magdalena. So it's like, why the hell not? We need to go over there and see that. Maybe we can talk to the aliens. I've got all kinds of questions, all kinds of questions that they could probably be incredibly helpful with. Um, but that was essentially it for our day of exploring. Like on day five, the last day we were going to spend out there before we trekked it 11 hours back home the next day, which was worth it. We did that on purpose so that we could get this full day of adventuring in New Mexico and experience all these awesome things that we got to see on day five are because we chose to not split our travel into two days and just make a long ass drive on the final day. And to me, that's worth it every day of the week because look at everything we got to do. We got to go and see the box. We got to explore and climb up the side of this damn mountain and go into these caves where there was indigenous petroglyphs, um, pictographs, actually. We got to go down and explore an abandoned mine, an abandoned town. We got to see a police standoff happening within like 50 yards of us. We got to meet this cool guy, James Chavez. I got to get a piece of railroad and Southwestern history. All of this happened because we chose to Make one long, miserable drive day to free up a whole extra day that we got to stay in the area and explore. And I will trade that any day of the week. That day essentially ended with a long drive, a couple of hours, back into Albuquerque. Um, coming into Albuquerque from the south, the lights, like I was talking about from day four, were beautiful. It's a little bit different situation. You're coming in at a different angle. You're more on the altitude of the lights, but it's still got like a whole magical kind of thing going on with it. You, you feel like you're kind of driving through a dream. It's a pretty neat experience. And we finished the night trying to eat at one last authentic place while we were there. And it was Garcia's Kitchen. And one quick side note on Garcia's Kitchen. It's there in Albuquerque. It was good. It was good. But I feel like they recognized us as tourists. Garcia, 
if you ever hear this, don't sue me. I'm not talking bad about you. You made good food. But I feel like they recognize us as tourists and they put us in a separate dining room that felt kind of like being made to sit at the kids' table at Thanksgiving dinner. Like we walked right through a dining room that looked like more local kind of people were all sitting there. And we found ourselves in a, and there were seats everywhere still, but we found ourselves being seated in a dining room in the back with a lot of people that looked a lot like we did. Probably very touristy, less ethnic, maybe. And um, our food there was actually compared to all the wonderful food we had in New Mexico, very bland. Like it was good. It's not bad. Garcia's, it's not bad. I'm not, do- I'm not dogging you. I'm just saying, I think they saw us and said, ah, they can't handle these chilies. You guys go sit in the back. You go sit at the kids' table. And I just feel like if we had been seated in the front kitchen, we would have gotten chilies with our food. That's all I'm saying. We got it in the back too, but it just, the flavor was not the same. I feel like they had a toned down version for tourists. That's all I'm saying. Probably totally wrong. Complete and total speculation. Please don't sue me, Garcias. You made good food. But I was just kind of surprised and it was kind of funny. We joked and laughed about it because it's like we got pushed into this back dining room with a lot of touristy looking people and our food was oddly bland compared to all the other Tex-Mex that we've had in this great land of New Mexico over the last week. So it was just interesting. It was an interesting observation. That's all I'm saying. But Garcia's was good. And in the end, our trip was awesome. Our trip was an absolute winner. I mean, good God, it filled up three solid hours of podcast time. The last episode was close to an hour and a half. This one's going to be close to an hour and a half. And I mean, honestly, I kind of chopped some stuff down a little bit and stayed away from some stuff that wasn't super important because I just knew this was running really, really long. This was a winner. This is the kind of trips you want to take. And most importantly to note is we missed these things. I'm going to make a quick list here that we wanted to do, but did not have time to do. And this would be the chain of craters backcountry byway, which is a backcountry off-road byway that I couldn't wait to put Clementine on and have some fun in that follows a chain of freaking volcanic craters. Okay. Didn't get to do that. The Quebrada backcountry byway out of Socorro, Socorro, same kind of thing. Backcountry off-road byway. It's called Quebrada because that is the word for like dry washes, like arroyos when they're not flooded or one of the terms for it. Did not get to go to El Maro National Monument, which is a giant rock outcropping that's got a ton of inscriptions on it from petroglyphs all the way up to historic times and early Spanish conquistador explorers. Um, Canyon de Che, Canyon or Chaco Canyon culture, all about three hours from Albuquerque. All of this stuff is right there in that general area. And we didn't make it to any of that stuff because the other four freaking days were so full of everything else. And that means we get to go back someday. And I'm excited about that. The other great thing about this trip that happened was we learned a lot. We learned a lot more about, well, each other and how we both liked a road trip. And it's actually quite like congruent. It works really well together. Like we had a great time on this road trip and also what both of us like to do, you know, a little more, a little less, you know, what's kind of, oh yeah, we got to hit the thing that you just have to hit. But we both found we're way more interested in these explore explorations, you know, where you find something like these, like in the 
the first episode of this two-part series talking about the Gilman Tunnels up there in the mountains and the Guadalupe Box and down here, the Kelly Mineshaft, you know, like that kind of stuff. The box that just came out of nowhere. Didn't even know we were going to see it and boom, there it was. We're really about that kind of stuff. Like we learned a lot more about how we want to trip in the future, you know, like there's a whole, not a compromise, but a learning of how you're going to do this going forward. I have my own way of road tripping, right? Like I have a way that I will do it all day long, but now there's another human involved. And so we had to figure out how we were going to do this. And we kind of learned a lot about that, found out that we're really in line on the same you know train of thought, which is awesome. And this is going to help us plan future expeditions. Like this is going to help us plan future trips. And that's super cool too. And finally, doing these things on a budget and I'm freaking shoving this in at the very end. And who knows if any of you have listened all the way to the very end, but if you are, this trip sounds like it cost uh, probably a lot of money. You know, I assure you it did not. And especially when you were splitting it two ways, if you have travel buddies, utilize them. You guys come up with adventures together and everything gets significantly cheaper. I utilize rewards programs for places to stay all kinds of different things you can explore guys. And this trip on the whole, not counting stuff like at home that we had to worry about, like boarding dogs for a few days and this and that and the other, or the little tchotchkes and things that we bought on the trip. Just talking about the cost of the trip cost a grand total by my account, roughly about 700 ish dollars taking out everything else that you consider split two ways. That's like $350 a piece to spend five freaking days. I mean, it's the better part of six days. You can't like six travel day. Wasn't that much fun because it was all driving, but we spent the better part of six days, a whole week on an adventure for me, $300, $350 for a vacation, even $400 for a week long vacation. It's not that bad a price y'all that's on a budget. We ate, had good places to eat and check them out, but we still made sandwiches in the car for lunches. We still did it on a budget and it worked out really, really well. We had a great time so it can be done. And if you take shorter trips, guess what? They cost even a whole lot less. Point is proof of concept. You don't have to spend an arm and a leg to travel. So that's like one less excuse for you to have about why you don't get off your butt and go and live your lives. Anyway, that's going to wrap it up for us here tonight. I'm sure I missed stuff in this multitude of crap I have before me to try to make this episode as we push on an hour and 40 minutes. Oh my God, this is going to be fun to edit. Um, But I'm super excited to have sat here and made this episode. I had a great time doing it. I hope you guys had a good time listening to it. I hope that maybe it'll inspire some of you to get off your butts and go explore New Mexico or somewhere near you that you've always wanted to go see, because I assure you life is meant to be lived and it is hard to live it from the comfort of your couch. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, you guys, please like, and subscribe and share. Please rate and review. If you want to get in touch, shoot me an email at mywaywardstory.com, or you can head over to our website, waywardstories.com. Dot com where you can see all these pictures, all these videos, everything that we did over that week of adventure in New Mexico and Arizona. It's all there to be, be seen right from the website. Um, Until we meet again, guys, I hope you guys get out there and find your own adventures to get into. And as I say at the end of every episode, and I hope that it doesn't get lost in the fact that I say it so repetitively because I mean it, you guys be good to each other.